Lord, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that indeed you are God today and forever. And Lord, you'll never leave us nor forsake us. We just ask right now as we go to your word, the Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak in a mighty and a powerful way. Minister to every heart that is here. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to finish up the uh, letter to James this morning. From James, I should say. Written to the early church. Uh, I will say this, too. I'm not a big one for promoting movies, but go see Expelled. Go see it. Uh, Good movie. Praise God for it. I don't know where Ben Stein is at with the Lord, but he's certainly... uh, you know, expose Darwinism for what it is in a lot of ways. And I'll tell you the thing that really gripped me the most about the movie, I'd have to say, is just how venomous and almost angry and bitter the Darwinists are about just mocking God. And I tell you, it just makes you want to pray for them because, boy, they are so hard and so lost. And just the mockery of the Lord, it just almost makes you angry. But you know what? We need to pray for them. They need Jesus. Amen? And He's God whether they believe in Him or not. And so, you know, my prayer is that they would not have to stand before Him in their current state, but they would come to know Him as Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. So let me encourage you to go see that. All right. This morning we're going to finish up, and as we've been looking at so far, I'm not going to go into a lot of review because I want to spend some time in the text. We've been talking about how this is such a practical letter written by the half-brother of Jesus, James, to the early church who at the time was suffering great persecution. And he exhorted them about, you know, counting it all joy in the midst of various trials, enduring temptation, not to show partiality, to, you know, all the way through to be, you know, swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. It's such a practical book that so applies to our lives today. And as we get toward the end of the book, he begins, he continues to exhort them. And we finished off last time uh, in chapter 5, him talking about how, you know what, if you're putting your faith in things that are perishing, you're going to be disappointed. He talked about the riches of this world that will be corroded and corrupted and will pass away. He also talked about just how we need to persevere and be patient and wait upon God. He used the example of a farmer who toils in the ground. He doesn't see the fruit right away, but he needs to remain faithful knowing that the return of the Lord is at hand. And then he says, finally, in verse 12, right before we get to the text for this morning, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And boy, what an exhortation for all of us today. Amen? We need to be people of our word. We shouldn't have to swear to make people believe us. I, really, I swear, I'm telling you, when people do that, I start to worry. You know, because you know, sometimes people protest a little bit too much, right? They have to tell you ten times that they absolutely mean it. We ought to be able to say something once and be people of our word. So in these final verses now, we're going to go third verses 13 through 20 of chapter 5. James is going to exhort the church as to how they should operate in the midst of this affliction in times of these great trials. And remember that trials can often bring faithless murmuring. He told them in the previous chapters not to be complainers, not to murmur. Guys, as Christians, we have nothing to complain about. Amen? We're going to heaven. We're new creations in Christ. We're filled with the Spirit of the living God. What in the world can we be complaining about? 
Sin and rebellion also can drive us into places of isolation. The enemy condemns us and makes us feel that we are of no value to the kingdom of God. And personal struggles can take our focus off our desperate need for the Lord. You know, if the enemy can't to destroy you, he will do everything he can to distract you, to render you ineffective for the kingdom of God. And that's what's happening here, is that these final verses now, he's really exhorting them, his last words to them, that look, the enemy wants to wipe you out. He wants to, if he can't destroy you, he wants to distract you. And now he's going to talk about the things that they need to be focused on. So this morning's text, he's going to get some real practical input on how the church, how the body of believers should function, even in the midst of these trials and great difficulty and even persecution. And so as the church, it it is important to, to note that God has given us some very clear instructions as to how we are to operate. Remember, the church is not a building, Amen. You guys are the church. We're the church. The word church, ecclesia, means called out ones. So church is the people. And the church of God has a clear calling upon its life, upon our lives. For the body to function and be healthy, we must use the gifts God has given us. So if, we're to, if we get off track, we can turn the church quickly into a social club or a political organization or a forum to promote man's thoughts and ideas or a place to come and be entertained. But we see the real purpose of the church is that we are the bride of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, Jesus ascended and he tells his followers to wait. He's going to send a pro- his, you know, the promise to come, the promise of the Holy Spirit. It says in Acts 1, but you shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2 and when the Holy Spirit came, there were tongues of fire, they spoke with other tongues and everyone heard in their own language the wonderful works of God. Guys, the reason the church exists, first and foremost, one of the main reasons is to proclaim the gospel. We exist to fulfill the Great Commission, to go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. You know, it's after the Pentecost, you see Peter, once fearfully denying Christ, now faithfully and boldly proclaiming the truth. And the greatest church growth in in all of human history happened the first day that the church existed. It grew from 120 people to 3,120 people in one day. And there was no program. The flying Walendas were not there. They didn't have a concert. They didn't pass out any flyers. They didn't water down the message. Peter got up with great boldness and preached the gospel. People were told they were sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And guess what? The Holy Spirit moved. And that's the same message that needs to be proclaimed today. I'm telling you all this because we get to Acts 2.42. And he describes the activities of the Spirit-filled church. And here's what he says. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which is the word of God, fellowship in the breaking of bread, which is communion and agape feast, two things we're going to do in a little while, and then in prayer. So here's the church. What should the church be doing? In a world where there's so many distractions of what we think the church should be doing, so focused on trying to be political or trying to do this or trying to do that, when you look at the Word of God, it's very clear. Here's the church. What are the four things? The Apostles' Doctrine, God's Word, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. There it is. And you know what? We need to be focused on those four things. That and, of course, the Great Commission. And as they did those simple things, what happened? The church grew. 
God added daily those who are being saved. And these early believers in James 5 need to get back to the basics of the Christian faith. They need to get back from their, they're worried about the persecution, they're worried about what people think, and they need to get back to the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of the word of God, of fellowship, of breaking bread and prayer, and so does the church today. And so these final verses, he's going to focus on one of these, and that one he's going to focus on is prayer. Guys, we need to be praying more. Amen? The Bible says, pray without ceasing, for the, this is the will of God. How much is that? Without ceasing means you never stop. Some of us need to start before we cannot stop. Amen? And you know what? Prayer, think about it. We can enter into the presence of the creator of the universe, and sometimes it becomes the last result when it ought to be the first place we go. Too often it's, oh, I've tried everything, I guess I'll pray. You know, I've gone to every doctor, I've tried everything, they're telling me it's hopeless, time to pray. Let's pray first, amen? Let's seek God first. And that's really what the text is all about. It says in Matthew, Jesus quoting Isaiah 56, 7, says, My house shall be called a house of what? A house of prayer. Not a house of worship, though we should worship. Not even a house of the word. Obviously, we need to be in the word. But he said he shall make his house a house of prayer. So I titled the message this morning, A House of Prayer, Evidences of a Healthy Church and a Spiritually Mature Believer. We're going to look at four things. Number one, these are evidences of a, a healthy church and a spiritually mature believer. First of all, you take everything to the Lord. Whatever you're going through, bring it to Jesus. Whatever's going on in life, whatever struggles you may be in, if, if everything is great, sing his praises. If things are tough, seek his face. Amen? That's number one. Number two, be transparent and accountable. Guys, we need to quit putting on the self-righteous, pretend attitude that everything's perfect all the time. We need to be transparent with each other. Amen? We need to learn to come alongside each other and be able to hold up each other's hands and quit pretending like we never blow it. Guess what? You all blew it this week. Amen? Is that true or not? We all blew it this week. We're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. If we didn't blow it this week, we wouldn't have to be here. We're here because we need Him. Amen? And we need His grace. Third, pray fervently. Have a consistent, focused, and unhurried prayer life. Pray fervently. This is the mark of a healthy church and a mark of a spiritually mature believer is someone who spends time in God's presence and doesn't run in and run out. I have an idea if Almighty God showed up at our house and said, come and talk to me for as long as you want. It'd be a little longer than we pray now. Amen? Sometimes we give God 35 seconds as we're falling asleep. Or we give them a, you know, throw up a quick missile over our Wheaties or whatever it might be, whatever your prayer life is like, right? But God so desires that we would have intimate fellowship with Him. And then lastly, the marks or the evidences of a healthy church and a spiritually mature believer is reaching out to those who've wandered away. Take action to see the rebellious restored. Guys, when someone walks away from God, it ought to break everybody's heart in the room. Amen? And more than just talk about them, we need to reach out to them. In love. Go the extra mile. 
So let's begin. A house of prayer. Evidences of a, a healthy church and a spiritually mature believer. Number one, we take everything to the Lord. Whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, include the Lord in it. Beginning there in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Psalms, excuse me. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So whether you be suffering, sick, or enjoying a great time of blessing, you ought to be doing exactly the same thing, keeping your eyes upon the Lord. Sometimes when things are tough, we want to turn from God. Things are tough. We become disappointed. We become disgruntled. We murmur against God. The children of Israel wandering in the wilderness after some time, they began to murmur against the Lord because things were tough. You know what? Sometimes when things are good, we forget about the Lord. We cease to be desperate for Him. Years ago, I was at uh, the senior pastor's conference and a guy taught Psalm 23, a guy who had a, a really debilitating illness. And most of you know I have a chronic problem of my own and so I went just interested to hear this young man's heart his is far worse than what I've got and I love what he said he talked about how you know the the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want and he said you know when you're lying down in green pastures the shepherds around here somewhere you know things are good life is good he said bad when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death you're hanging on to him with both hands amen And so sometimes we can fall away from God because of difficulty, but sometimes we fall away because things seem to be good and we're not as desperate as we used to be. Boy, they've got money in the bank, everybody's healthy. You know, my prayer life wanes when things are good. I had a guy tell me, and I've shared this with you before, that the only time he really prays is when things are tough, and he goes, man, things have been really tough lately. I said, well, maybe God misses you. You know, the Lord loves us enough to do whatever it takes to bring us to that place. The word there, suffering, it says if anyone among you is suffering, the word there is affliction. It means to undergo hardship. So in context, the letter is written to believers who are enduring a great deal of hardship and trouble and persecution. And the exhortation here is not to panic or to lose faith or to seek their own way out, not to swear a rash oath, as he said in the previous verse, but to bring it to the Lord in prayer. Guys, the Lord is always available. You know, he never goes to sleep. He never turns off the phone. You know, it's never after hours. Imagine if you started to pray, you know, God's not here right now. And you'll call back on Monday between eight and four. I mean, God doesn't do that. Everybody else does that, but God's always available, ever desires that we would come to Him. And when we're in afflictions, when we're in those times of trial, when we're undergoing hardship, as I know many of you are right this very moment, what a great time to turn to Him. Don't go through this alone. Seek the Lord. He loves you. You're His child. You're His treasured possession. Suffering, trials, and affliction is an opportunity for us to grow spiritually. God is not blind to our trials. He instructs us to count it all joy in the midst of them. So while we suffer affliction, we should count it all joy and pray at the same time. Seek God in the midst of it. Remember this, prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. Amen? We don't pray to get God to change his mind so he'll do what we want. We pray so that we get our heart aligned with his. 
So we come and seek his face in the midst of the trial. We say, Lord, I'm going through this. I need to know your will. I need to know your heart. Help me to see this through your eyes. Help me to recognize the great things you're going to do through this, Lord. Help me to trust you in the midst of this difficulty. Again, many here are enduring affliction and undergoing hardship. Many are out of work right now. Some have children in rebellion. Many have health issues. And the word that God would say to you this morning is seek him in the midst of it. Don't succumb to the temptation to turn away from God, to question, to doubt, to lose hope, or even to turn your back on the Lord. In Psalm 50, it says this. I love this word. It says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Psalm 50, 15. Let me say that again. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Guys, the reason God doesn't always deliver us from the trial is that he wants to bring us to a place where he will get the greatest amount of glory. That his name will be magnified. That people will see that God indeed is real because of the way we have been steadfast in the midst of the trial. Sometimes he delivers us from the trial and sometimes he comforts us in it. But whatever God wants to do, bring glory to his name, then Lord, do that. Temptation in the time of suffering, again, is to turn from God, to be angry, to be bitter, to lose hope, to lose faith. But the exhortation here is to pray. To turn to God, not to run from Him. Then he says, So if anyone among you is suffering, what should you do? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Cheerful there means pleasant, agreeable, free from trouble. Now that's not very often, is it? You know, the truth as Christians is, we're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to go into a trial. Right? I mean, the trials may vary in levels, but the reality is that living on this world that is dying and passing away, walking around in these tents that are falling apart, amen, that there's going to be trials in our lives. But God uses them for His glory. But when, they're, when we're free from trials, again, the easiest thing to do often is to forget about our desperate need for God. Times of affliction may be the times when you pray the most. But times when things are good, when we're free from the troubles of life, we need to sing praise songs to the Lord. Guys, the truth is I believe that it can be the greatest time of temptation when things are going really, really well. Be careful. Times of difficulty, people turn to God. Times of plenty, often we turn from Him. The exhortation in the times of suffering is to seek God. The times of plenty is to praise God. Here's the ultimate sign of spiritual maturity. Times of suffering, praise God anyway. Amen? He says, you know, in times of difficulty, pray. In times of plenty, praise. Well, I say in times of difficulty, praise. The Bible says, you know, that we are to praise Him continually. Let His praise continually be in my mouth. You know, Job said, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. Amen? And we need to get to that place where we can praise God no matter what the circumstances because it's not our circumstances but the character of God that we trust in. Here's the good news, guys. God is faithful. God is merciful. God is loving. God is compassionate. He can never be anything but that toward you, His precious children. So no matter what's going on, even if you don't get it, and guess what? There's going to be times when you don't get it and I don't get it because He's God and we're not. Amen? And here's the reality. Aren't you glad you don't serve a God you can completely understand? 
If he could, he wouldn't be a very great God. He's so great that he's far beyond our imagination. And I'm so, I just praise him that he is. I praise him that as great as we think he is, he's greater than that. As much as we think he loves us, he loves us more than that. As awesome as we think heaven's going to be, it's going to be way better than that. Nobody's going to get to heaven and go, is this it? Nobody. And you know what? Some of those guys who are mocking God, when they stand before Him one day, I pray they'll repent before then. But for those who don't, you know, one, guy, one of the questions in the movie was, well, if there is a God and you stand before Him one day, what are you going to say? And this world-renowned atheist said, I'm going to ask Him why it was so hard for us to find Him. And I'm like, dude, you need to get over. You know, you can't see the forest for the trees, Right? You know, all you need to do is look at creation, amen? Have you seen a rainbow, by the way? Who put that there? Almighty God did, amen? And you just look at humanity, you look at everything around us, you know what, it's only when people choose to be blind. When they turn themselves away from Him, that they miss Him. The ultimate sign of spiritual maturity is in times of suffering to praise God. We see Paul do it, Barnabas do it, Job, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3. I love those stories. And years ago, when my dad was pastoring here in Santa Cruz, there was a man who came to visit us by the name of Richard Wormbrandt. Maybe some of you have heard of him. And he was one of the founders of the Voice of the Martyrs. And he spent many, many years in prison for preaching the gospel. And he spoke of one cell that he was in that was shaped like an L. He couldn't lie down or sit up. And because of it, when he would come to speak, he had to sit on a stool. He had so much pain in his back. But he would talk about how he, the other prisoners were quite a ways away from him. And they couldn't really talk to each other very well. But what they could do is they could take their chains and cling them together to play worship songs. So they would take their chains and they would play worship songs and praise God. That's spiritual maturity, Amen. That's praising God in the midst of the trial. That's bringing glory and honor to His name. And you know, I hear stuff like that and I think, man, I'm bummed out because I got a flat tire. They ran out of my favorite coffee at Starbucks or whatever. We think it's a trial. We have no idea the difficulties that the world goes through. So when you're suffering, pray. When you're cheerful, praise Him. Don't get your eyes off of Him. But I say even more in the midst of the greatest trials, praise Him. And then finally he says this, if anyone among you sick, the word sick there in the Greek is weak or feeble or diseased. So what do you do when you're sick? What should we do when we're sick? It says here, let him call for the elders of the church. Notice that he puts the responsibility on the sick person. Now it doesn't mean that if we know someone's sick, we shouldn't go and pray for them. Absolutely we should. But often, and I'll just share your pastor's perspective. You know, sometimes I'll find out someone's been in the hospital for 10 days and got out, and we never even knew they were there. And then sometimes that person's upset because they think we don't care, but we can't come and minister to you if we don't know you're in the hospital. And so here he says, look, if you're sick, you call for the elders. You ask, you know what, it's an act of faith on your part. It's a sign of humility too, isn't it? We don't want to do that, do we? I'm fine. Isn't that what we do? Especially guys. We're never sick. Ever. I'm fine. I'm doing, I'm fine. Right? 108 temperature, falling over dead, throwing up. I'm fine. No problem. Not going to the doctor, right? 
And the reality is that we need to humble ourselves and come to a place where we do as God has commanded us, which is go to the elders of the church, and then it says, and let them pray over him. Now, the elders, who is that? The elders, the Bible describes, there's three words that really all point to one person. They're interchangeable, one group of people. Elder, pastor, and bishop are all interchangeable in Scripture. Okay? Elder describes who he is. He's a man of spiritual maturity. Doesn't necessarily mean he's old. He should be someone who's been walking with God for some time. The Bible says, lay hands on no man quickly. But I'll be honest with you, I've met 15-year-olds who are more spiritually mature than 90-year-olds. Amen? And vice versa, age is not the... But there should be a, someone who's been walking with God for a length of time, those who are spiritually mature. So elder describes who he is. Bishop describes what he does. He has oversight over the body. He's going to be accountable to God one day for having oversight spiritually over the body. And finally, pastor is how he does it, with the heart of a loving shepherd, willing to serve and lay down his life for the sheep. So if you are sick, call for the elders. Every time we have service here, when service is over, the pastors, the elders, are up front for you to pray with them. If you are sick, come forward and ask for prayer. Amen? If you're sick and at home, call us. We will be happy to come out to your house and pray for you. Now, the, the, the prayer of you know, the elders isn't more than, but it's, it's obedience. Amen? The Word of God tells us to do it, so we do it as an act of obedience unto the Lord. Now, how are the elders to respond? Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, notice it says, let them pray over him. I love the plurality that several men agreeing together. You know what I love about it? When the group prays and God answers, no one can take credit. Amen? Too often today, that's the problem, is that when a man prays and then someone is healed, someone starts to think that guy had something to do with it. Without him, we can do what? Nothing. And the word in the Greek for nothing is nothing. So the reality is that without the Lord, we can pray all day, it'll be nothing unless God chooses to do it. We come in humility, agreeing with the Word of God, in obedience before Him, doing what He has called us to do. And it says there, I love this part, anointing Him with oil in the name of the Lord. So what's the significance of the oil? Some of you may have even been prayed for in Somebody got a little vial of oil out and put some on your forehead, and you might have thought, what is that about? I'm going to break out there now, thanks. You know, or something like that, right? <laughs> you might have wondered, what's this oil about? Well, in Scripture, oil is used to symbolize a couple of things. First of all, the oil is a symbol of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Whenever a priest or a prophet or a king, they were always anointed with oil before they assumed their position of authority. But what's interesting to me is it's also used, in those days, it was used as a, for, had medicinal purposes. You know, when the good Samaritan saw the man who had fallen by the wayside, and he was covered in sores and hurt, it says he rubbed oil all over him. So it's a picture of both, you know, applying medicine but also it's a picture of the holy spirit and you might look and say well, which one is it i believe it's both 
Because what we're doing is, notice it says here, it says, anoint him in the name of the Lord. So you pray to the Father in the name of the Son with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Amen? When we come and we pray, we're praying to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Guys, if we don't pray in the name of Jesus Christ, it goes nowhere. Do you understand that? People say, well, what about the Muslims who pray or the Hindus who pray? Or the... It goes nowhere. Why? Because there's only one mediator between man and God. Who is it? Jesus Christ. That's why you pray in Jesus' name. You might wonder, why do I pray in Jesus' name? That's why you pray in Jesus' name. You pray in agreement with his name and you come through his name to the Father. But notice too, I believe, that this has another picture for us as well, at least back in those days, that this was saying, look, we pray, we come before God, we believe he can heal, but we also believe that God has provided medicine as well. Guys, there are two streams of healing. God can just reach down from heaven and heal you, and God can use medicine to heal you. Let me explain something to you. Prayer doesn't heal you, and medicine doesn't heal you. God heals you. He can choose medicine, or he can just do it without it. Either way, God's the one who healed you, amen? And he should get all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. And so he says, call them together, and lay hands on them, anoint their head with oil. Again, it's an act of faith. It's a belief in the power of the Lord by His Holy Spirit to heal. It's a belief in His presence among us. And again, God is the one who heals. And again, it says, in the name of the Lord, call for the elders and pray in the name of the Lord. God calls us to do it. We are to obey, and He will respond. You know what? And we leave it up to Him. Now, Verse 15, this is one of the most abused verses in the Bible. Okay, so I want to make sure we understand it. Look what it says. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, people read that and say, there it is. If you have faith, God will heal the sick every time. Have you heard that before? There's a pastor on TV that's a big name and acclaim it faith guy, right? And he had a broken leg and he said, I'm not sick. I broke my leg. I'm not sick. Because if you're sick, now think about this. Then you would never die. Right? If you had faith, you would just live forever. Guys, we have faith that God can heal, but God doesn't always heal. Because it's not about us being comfortable, but Him being glorified. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh all of his life. Did he have no faith? Apostle Paul needed more faith. Is that the problem? That was not the problem. Paul prayed, he trusted God, and God said, I will be more glorified by the thorn remaining and you remaining faithful than if I healed you. That's a word for some of us this morning. You may have been praying for a long time. Trust that God is doing what is best. The word faith there is a conviction of the truth, a belief. It includes the idea of trust and a holy fervor. So the prayer of faith is a prayer made in confident belief in God and His power to heal. Do you believe that God can and does heal people today? What's the answer? Absolutely. You know what? I want to see God do more miracles if that's what He wants to do. But often, it doesn't happen because we lack the prayer, the faith to even pray. 
I'm amazed when I go to India, some of the things I hear and some of the things I've witnessed because they don't know any better. You know, this guy died, so we prayed for him. You know what happened? He got up. What? Dead guy got up? Yeah, dead guy got up. I was, I was I'm driving down the car with four guys in the car. I said, how did you get saved? These guys are all pastors. Oh, well, my family, you know, when I was growing up, my dad had abandoned us and my mom died. And he said the third day, you know, in our culture out in the villages, we would burn the bodies. We had our bodies set up on this thing. We were about to light it on fire for her to, you know, and then this guy came walking out of the, we don't know where he came from. He walked over, he laid hands on mom, prayed for her, and she set up. And he goes, you know what? My whole family got saved. I guess so. And she lived like another 30 years. When's the last time you went to a coffin and prayed? Can God do that if he wants to? What's the answer? He says, in the last days, you'll do greater things than these. Why? But we don't. We have not because we ask not. You know, Lord, I expect, I know you can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Let's stop putting God in a box and let's start praying and asking God to do greater things than we've ever seen before. Maybe that's what God wants to do to turn Santa Cruz right side up. Amen? Maybe you need to see something great like that happen. But you know what? If God chooses not to do it, we trust him anyway. Amen? Because he knows what is best. And it says there, the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the, who will raise him up? And the Lord will raise him up. It doesn't say the prayer of faith will raise him up. It's not the prayer of faith that raises him up. It's the Lord who raises him up. Amen? We pray, we believe, we trust, and we leave it in God's hands. God, I believe you can do it. I know you can do it. God, you're greater than this. This is nothing for you. You absolutely can do it. But God, we trust that you're going to do what is according to your perfect will that will bring glory to your name and we praise you for it right now. Amen? More and more, my prayer has been, Lord, give this person the grace to stand with you no matter what you choose to do. Give them the grace, Lord, to know you love them in the midst of the trials and the difficulties of life. The results are not based upon the depths of man's faith, but the perfect will of God. And again, clearly God doesn't grant immediate healing for every prayer of faith. The reasons are hidden in the heart and the mind of God. And again, we need to trust that he knows what is best. Still many are not healed because there is no prayer offered. So it's not the prayer of faith alone that brings about healing, but without the prayer of faith, there will be no healing. God says, you know, you come, you pray, you, you be obedient, you seek my face. I can honestly tell you, I, and by the grace of God, I have seen people heal from cancer instantaneously. I've seen God do great and mighty things, and I've also prayed for people that a week later have gone to be with the Lord. And guess what? Sometimes that's the best of all options. Amen? Oh man, God didn't answer prayer. Yeah, poor thing in, in heaven with Almighty God. Wow, what a drag person got healed of cancer lived 30 more years who really won that deal right i mean the reality is the reality is that we need to say okay lord whatever you choose to do your highest your will be done not my will but your will be done we're to pray believing in humble confidence that god will heal heal having prayed we leave the matter in his hands and again prayers of faith too can sometimes be in response to the Lord's prompting. Think of the time when Peter and John, how many times would they have walked by a wonder? Just your pastor thinking, how many times they walked by that lame man? 
He was sitting at the gates, beautiful, begging. And I don't know how many times they probably walked in that synagogue back and forth and never, maybe never noticed him or maybe tossed him a coin or a piece of bread or whatever. But this day, they looked at him and prompted by the Holy Spirit, they stopped and they turned and said, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy got up. Now what happened? The Holy Spirit prompted them. Amen? And guys, as we walk in the fullness of the Spirit, we will be sensitive to those divine appointments and those opportunities to see God do great and awesome things. But sadly, too often we're so caught up in our lives that we walk right by the opportunities God has for us to bring glory and honor to His name. God is still, still healing today. We have not because we ask not. We need to be praying more that God would heal, that God would do great things. And again, he, he gives us grace to heal. He has grace to heal, but also the grace to endure if he chooses not to. And then it says there, and if he has committed sins, verse 15, second half, he will be forgiven. Now, I believe in the context, this actually is pointing to the fact that some of these illnesses were the result of sin. Now, here's the reality. There's, there's some really crazy things out there today where people will say every illness is a result of your disobedience. That's not true. Not biblically accurate. But some illnesses are, right? You know, if I go out and I'm promiscuous, I could end up with a sexually transmitted disease, and I brought that on myself, didn't I? And so he's saying here that sometimes as they come seeking, you know, a healing touch from God, Says the prayer of faith will save the sick, the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there are times when our sin is a result, our, our sickness is a result of sin, but we certainly know that even Jesus said, when they came and said, Lord, why has this man been born blind? Is it his sin or the sin of his parents? And the Lord told them very clearly, it wasn't anyone's sin, but that through him, God might be glorified. Guys, sometimes the sickness is a divine appointment that God's going to use to bring glory to his name. We need to make sure that we don't look at people who are sick and judge them and think that it's somehow their sinful behavior. And they or may not be, and really it's none of your business. You just pray for them. It's between them and the Lord, and God will work it out. Amen? We need to seek His face. God doesn't always heal physically, and again, if He did, we'd never die. Praise God, He'll always forgive, though. He doesn't always heal, but He'll always forgive. And you know what? If I had to have a choice, give me the forgive. Amen? He always forgives. Every time you come, anyone who seeks his face, anyone who comes broken and repentant, he will forgive us every single time. His, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, and aren't you glad? So, a house of prayer evidences of a healthy church and a spiritually mature believer. Take everything to the Lord. Number two, be transparent and accountable. Look at verse 16. Confess your trespasses one to another. Now this confession is not the source of forgiveness. Uh, now it can be. Let me just clarify that. If you've sinned against your brother, the Bible says you should go to him and ask him to forgive you. If you sin against your spouse, you sin against a co-worker, you should go to that person and ask for forgiveness. But the ultimate forgiveness only comes from God. Amen? Because only he paid the price for your sin that can forgive you and redeem you from it. But notice here that he says this is a mark of a healthy church. That you don't just keep all of your sin to yourself. 
Guys, there's a time when we need to go to other brothers and sisters in Christ and be transparent with them. Notice why. Look what it says. It says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know what? As you are transparent, or if somebody is transparent with you and shares with you a struggle, that is not so you can run and tell everyone else you know. Amen? It is so you can pray for them. Somebody shares with you a struggle, you share with them, guess what you've got? You've got prayer partners. You're praying for each other. You're holding up each other's hands. You have a source of accountability. You've heard me say it before. Christianity is not for the lone ranger. And again, the result of confession to others is praying for each other. And again, not confession to a man who hands out penance. Amen? You know, that's not mutual confession, is it? You go sit in a box and tell some guy and then he gives you some penance. Okay, go pray this many prayers and say this many this. I know a lot of you grew up with that. Guys, guess what? Jesus said, it is finished. Amen? No more penance. No more, you know, we don't have to crawl on our knees up a hill to prove to God that we love him. He loves us. He paid the price. It's finished. But we have confession with each other that we might have a an opportunity to pray for each other, to encourage one another, and have accountability as well. Only God can forgive sin, and again, He's the one that we seek. So here, confession is transparent and open communication with other believers as a source of accountability and encouragement. So mature response to confession, again, is not gossip, but loving intercessory prayer. So here's something that should be happening in the church. Confess your trespasses one to another. Find somebody who you can you know, pour your heart into, who, you, who ministers to you, and you can minister to them. So a house of prayer. Not only do we see this accountability and transparency, but we need to be praying fervently. Have a consistent, focused, and unhurried prayer life. Look at verse 16, second half. It says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We've all probably quoted that verse before. Affectant fervent means, the word is energio in, in Greek, which means energetic. The prayer from the depths of one's spirit energized by heaven. You know, that's the, the fervent, effectual prayer. Not as much about the length of the prayer. Sometimes we think if we pray a really long time, that makes us really spiritual. Look in the Bible and notice the prayers that you see. Most of them are not very long. It's not about the number of words, but the depths of the heart that it comes from. Amen? Remember it says the Pharisees love to stand on the street corner and pray long prayers. So everybody will say, wow, that guy's really spiritual. Wow. He goes on and on and on. He uses $3 words when he prays. You know, God's not impressed by that at all. Amen? Fervent prayer is unwavering, focused, filled with praise, energized by heaven. It's not a lukewarm attitude that you know, virtually asks God to care about something you care little about. If you don't care, why should God? You know, you come to God, oh Lord, yeah, I pray for that guy. You know, I got him driving, oh yeah, I forgot to pray for him. Lord, bless that guy as I'm driving down the road. You know what? Is that the kind of conversations we should be having with Almighty God? Or should we turn everything off, stop, be still, and spend time in His presence? Amen? The fervent, effectual prayer, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. The word righteous 
is, uh, speaks about the effectiveness of his prayer, not based on one's wealth or rank or position or level of education or eloquence of speech, but the man is righteous, which means he is right standing before God. What makes us righteous? The shed blood of Jesus Christ. We're not righteous because we're good, but because he's good. So it's the, it's the focused, passionate prayer of one who has right standing before God that brings about great things. And guys, when we have right standing before God, we're going to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. This verse could be rephrased this way. Much power is in the prayer of a righteous man. Walking in faithful obedience to the Word of God is only possible as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And James, who God used used to pen these words, was such a man. Ancient historians said that James had heavy-duty calluses on his knees. They said he had knees, they used to call them camel knees, because he was so, spent so much time in, in prayer and, in the, and on his knees kneeling and asking forgiveness of God and interceding on behalf of others. You know, a, a laborer's hands will tell you his occupation, a runner's feet will sh- tell you of his training, but James' callous knees testified of his life of serious prayer. I remember one time I was at a pastor's conference, a real good friend of mine we were rooming at the same hotel, and, and he said the night before he'd gone out on the balcony just to kind of be out in the fresh air, and he caught out of the corner of his eye this pastor that was going to be speaking the next morning, and he was on his knees praying. He said he went to bed and slept five or six, seven hours and got back up and went out into the sun, and there he was in the same clothes, still on his knees praying. And then he got up that day and brought one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard in my life. Is it any wonder... The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Amen? As we spend time in God's presence, as we seek His face, nobody else knew it. It wasn't, he wasn't doing this for people to see Him. He was just hanging out with Almighty God. Hanging out with the Creator of the universe. Now, in case we've missed it, the understanding of what this effective, fervent prayer is, he gives an example of such a man, Elijah. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Don't you like that? He didn't say Elijah was a man perfect in all his ways. He says Elijah was a man just like you, just like me. Praise God. And then it says this, And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. He became the weatherman. What happened was, though, he knew the word of God. Because it says in Deuteronomy, and I love this, it says he prayed earnestly, which means to bow down. So Elijah was fully submitted to God, but I also believe it's very clear that he was a man of the word because it says in Deuteronomy 11, take heed to yourselves, take to your heart, be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, and the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you and shut up heaven, and there will be no rain that the land will yield no fruit lest you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord gave you. He knew what the Word of God said. If you turn away from God, it's going to stop raining. Ahab had started bringing in Baal worship. And Elijah went in and told him, you know what? You brought in false idols, and guess what? It's not going to rain. You know why? Because God's Word says so. And he knew what the Word of God said. He was spending time in God's presence, and so he was able to stand up and speak boldly for the Lord. Guys, we can speak boldly for the Lord when we know what His Word says. Amen? 
He was filled with the Spirit of the living God, a man of fervent and effectual prayer. He was prompted by the Spirit and was in agreement with the Word of God. It's not going to rain, King Ahab. I love Elijah. He goes in and kicks down all the idols. I kind of like that. That's a guy thing to do, isn't it? He goes in there, not going to rain. And by the way, how's Baal working out for you? <laughs> you know, I just love that. I'm not saying we should do that, but that's what God had him do. Now, again, he had a nature like ours, but he had the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. May we pray just as fervently, respond just as faithfully, be led by the Spirit in agreement with God's Word, and watch what He will do. It says there in verse 18, And He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Everything was held at a standstill until Elijah prayed again that the rain would come. But he didn't pray until... God had brought about a great and awesome work to prove that he is God up on Mount Carmel. You guys know the story. He called fire down from the sky. The prophets of Baal were wiped out. God was proven to be God, and then rain came. God can do that, amen? He can do whatever he wants. He's the creator of the universe. Last two verses. We see that a house of prayer not only takes everything to the Lord in a a church that is walking in spiritual maturity, that we bring everything to the Lord, that we're transparent and accountable, that we pray fervently, but lastly, we reach out to those who've wandered away. Look at 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know what? Turning a brother back to the Lord, a believer who has wandered away, Someone who's walking in rebellion, be it a believer or not, rather than mock and slander them, but to reach out to them in love. You know what? That's the heart of someone who's walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You know what? Think about this. I believe this to be true of everybody in this room. If you were driving home today and you saw a car overturned and it was starting to catch on fire and somebody was in the car stuck, I believe if you have the physical wherewithal, you would do everything you could to get that person out of the car, wouldn't you? It wouldn't even be a question. Maybe it might even, you might get burnt in the process. You might get harmed in the process. But guess what? More important than even that would be to see somebody who has walked away from God. Somebody who has either had a moment where they looked like they knew the Lord and they walked away, that's up to God, or someone who knows Him and is now in rebellion, we ought to be just as adamant to reach out to that person, if not more so. Amen? See and realize where they're headed, how far away from God they've gotten, and it's our, our calling to go out and to love them. It says in First Peter, Above all, keep fervent in love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. When we see someone struggling in sin, instead of blasting them, instead of attacking them, we need to pray for them and reach out to them in love. Amen? The church is not a police station, it's a hospital. People don't come here to get beat up, they come here to get healed. They come here to be loved on and ministered to. And you know what? That's exactly what James has been doing through this entire letter. Confronting and exhorting those who are contemplating wandering away from the faith. It's not by chance that he ends with these verses because he's saying to them, if you see someone about to wander away, bring them back. You see someone's walked away from the Lord, reach out to them in love. Guys, we need to stop and realize that eternity hangs in the balance. So in closing, 
a house of prayer, evidences of a, of a healthy church and a spiritually mature believer. Take everything to the Lord. No matter what you're going through, things are good, praise God. Things are difficult, praise God. Seek Him in prayer. Be transparent and accountable. Christianity's not for the Lone Ranger. The devil wants to isolate you. Don't fall for his trap. Pray fervently. Have a consistent, focused, and unhurried prayer life. Spend time in His presence. And then lastly, reach out to those who've wandered away. Take action when, to see those in rebellion restored. Now, we're going to go to a time of communion. I've instructed the worship team. They're just going to play the music. We're not going to have any words. And I want you to take this time to just spend some time in the Lord's presence. Where else you got to be? Some unhurried time with Him. And you know what? Examine your heart before Him. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For several thousand years, they were sacrificing lambs. For several thousand years, they were observing this Passover feast. And finally now, they understood that the bread was the body of Christ broken for them. And that the, the wine or the juice for us was the blood of Christ shed for many for the remission of sins. Guys, as we take this time, we need to look back to the cross of Calvary. Remember all that He's done for us. We look within and examine our own hearts before Him. And then He said... Remember, the next time we do this, there's going to be a day coming we're going to do this with Him in heaven. He said, next time I have this feast, it will be with you in heaven. Guys, we look forward to the time we will have this feast with Him in heaven. So let's take this time and just spend it with the Lord. I'm going to have the pastors up here. If any of you need prayer, if you're in a situation where you feel like, you know what, I need to get some things right with God before I sit down and do this, and you feel like you need to pray with a pastor, please do that. You know what? You can pray yourself as well. You do whatever the Lord's convicting you to do. But let's take this time and let's honor Him. And let's be unhurried about it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You. We thank You for the blessed privilege, Lord, of partaking of these elements. Lord, I pray that it would not grow common. It would not just be a religious ritual. But Father, it would be a time of us just entering into Your presence spending unhurried time with you. Father, we thank you and praise you for the cross of Calvary. May it never grow common. We thank you, Lord, that we serve a risen and living Savior who's triumphed over sin and death. Lord, I pray during this time we would examine our hearts before you. Lord, if we need to confess struggles and sins and trials, Father, I pray we'd be, we would confess. I pray, Lord, we would not pretend to be something we're not. We'd be open, Lord. Father, there's somebody else here we need to make things right with before we partake of communion. I pray we do that. Lord, if we need to come forward and have a time of prayer with one of the pastors, I pray we would do that. Lord, you know exactly where we are. You know what our hearts are, Father. Lord, I just pray we'd be honest and open enough to be faithful and transparent before you. Lord, may you be blessed. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.